Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and I'm excited as we get into November here to uh, bring in our first episode of the month and bring him back a guest we've had on the show several times before, but hasn't been on for over a year and has got a lot of things to update us about. So I'm excited to hear what he's got going on. But before we can do any of that, as happens every week, we have to make sure Sam is here because she is the glue that holds the show together. Hey, Sam. Oh, thank you, Jamie. Yeah, it's actually, um, we had a bit of snow here for a while, but uh, it seems to be warming up for the weekend. Not so much for the kids on Halloween, but it looks like we'll have a warm weekend and then probably more snow. That's kind of how it works. But um, how are things out there on the East Coast, Jamie? Um, good here. I mean, we got that. We were having that cold snap that's, I think, running from Texas to Maine right now that um, is making things, uh, bringing the first real round of chilly, wit- frigid temperature. Was down uh, 28 Fahrenheit this morning uh, when I went over to the cafe for my morning run there around um, 7 a.m., just heading over there. And um, that's the first time it's been that cold, below freezing. And so the first real frost kicked in. Everybody's vegetables that were left in their garden are now kaput. And we can move on into the winter time. Yeah, we sure have lost a lot of plants uh, during our storm. I was house sitting for some people and said, well, your dogs are fine, but your plants not so much. They're all frozen. So that's how that works. Um, we have tonight a return guest that we like to hear from from time to time, Mr. Jason Friesen, who's the busiest guy in the world, I think. Um, but we want to catch up with him because you, Jamie, found a uh, an article that he wrote trying to let people know about Beacon and what it does. I mean, I want, I want to take that article and kind of do a deep dive into it. Don't forget some- Becky's here, too. So we want to make sure we let everybody know who's on the call. So. Yes, Miss Becky is with us too. From a disaster preparedness management perspective, it's the other guy that does the weather, but he's not here, so it looks like the weather's holding for the week. So, righty. So, Jason, oh my God, I, I was looking at the little blurb on on the website that kind of explains what you are, but I want to get more into that. It's, Trekmedics International develops innovative mobile technologies to ensure communities can send the right responder to the right location at the right time. What a concept. We do this primarily through Beacon, a reliable and cost-effective dispatch solution for responder organizations. And we're going to talk more about that. But tell us how, and I always ask you to do this because I happen to like the story, but how did Trekmedics get started? And then when was Beacon folded in? Thanks so much, Sam and, and Jamie and Becky. It's great to be back and always a pleasure to check in with you guys. Um, so yeah, the how did this start? The origin story is uh, isn't fast, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes version here. So uh, I lived in uh, San Diego, California, where I have just moved back, actually. And I was working as a paramedic um, along the border got involved with the Red Cross in Tijuana, volunteering with their uh, ALS services down there, and was also on some disaster response teams, ended up in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake uh, on a disaster response team where we were primarily providing uh, acute care in an open-air open clinic, a makeshift open-air clinic, 
Um, and my experiences there in Haiti ultimately led me to move back full time where I was working for a non-governmental organization uh, right in the middle of the cholera outbreak. So for your listeners who may remember, first in January 2010 was the earthquake in Haiti. And then by the end of the year, the UN had brought in cholera and they had a terrible cholera outbreak. And I can remember distinctly one day uh, I was in a meeting with the Ministry of Health and all of the international relief organizations and the health uh, organizations that were there in Haiti. And they were talking about the cholera outbreak. And they said that 95% of all cholera fatalities were happening before the patients reached the hospital. And for those of you who are familiar with cholera, uh, acute cholera will kill you in four hours. It is very easy to treat. Uh, it's basically rehydration. But if you don't uh, get to those uh, to doctors and, and get rehydrated, then in four hours, acute cholera can kill you. And so the question was, how do we reduce fatalities from cholera? And by and large, the the belief was that they needed to build more cholera treatment centers. And coming from an EMS background, I was thinking that maybe there was another way to do it, and that was to get people to the hospital faster. And, uh, you know, that, that's that's our business, right? Let's get people to the hospital as quick as we can if there's not anything we can do for them outside of the hospital. So uh, that kind of set off in my mind the idea that, you know, there are people all over Haiti who have vehicles, private transport, whatever it may be, uh, particularly a lot of what they call top tops, which are pickup trucks that are converted into uh, public transport. And there are all sorts of people with transport and they've all got phones in their pocket, but they don't know where they're needed or when they're needed. So maybe if we could come up with a simple messaging system to alert people uh, with transport to go and pick people up who were suffering from cholera and get them to the hospitals or the cholera treatment centers quicker, then you could reduce fatalities. Well, Needless to say, after two years in Haiti, I realized that uh, nobody was going to fund this messaging software that I had in mind. So I ultimately left and went back home to the Northeast and paid out of pocket to get a prototype built. And the prototype is was for a, a, a dispatching system. At the time, it was SMS only because uh, where we were working and where we were involved was in places i mean there were smartphones but not in the countries that we were working and and uh regularly involved in including haiti so built it to be sms only and it really just you know sent an alert to somebody and said we need you at this location can you go are you on your way are you there do you need more resources are you transporting have you arrived at the destination are you finished right basically mimicking the mobile data terminal that we were using on our ambulances at the time and which, you know, are still being used today, but doing it in a way that was through SMS messages. And that's, that's really where it all started was with the prototype. And from there uh, we started getting a lot of um, interest and we started getting more funding and we launched some programs. Uh, yes. In Haiti, but also in Dominican Republic and in Tanzania working with, uh, in the Dominican Republic, working with fire departments and also with volunteer ambulance services, but also in Tanzania, working with uh, another health group that had trained motorcycle taxi drivers 
to respond to road traffic injuries. And so very grassroots based stuff. And um, that was 2013, 2014, around in there. And that's where it all started. Uh, we've come a long way since then, but that's, uh, yeah, that's our, that's our origin story. I can well imagine that that's one of the bigger challenges in some of the places you're going is their technology. I know you can use laptops, you can use smartphones if they're available, but you know, how do you get around that in places like Tanzania or Haiti or Somalia? Well, now the problem isn't so much the hardware, right? Um, a lot has changed, obviously, over the past 10 years, and now smartphones are everywhere, and we've got a mobile app, so it makes it much easier to use. Um, the problem, actually, in, in low- and middle-income countries that we run into a lot isn't the hardware, it's, it's the data and the messaging. So you can go buy a phone, but then you have to pay or data. And, um, you know, in the United States and higher income countries, it's very common that you have what they would call a postpaid contract, right? At the end of the month, you get your bill and you pay it. That's actually not common in low and middle income countries. They're all prepaid. So you've got to go top up your credits, right? You go to the local phone dealer. Oftentimes they're in a kiosk on, you know, busy intersections and you give them, you know, 20 bucks, we'll say $10, whatever it might be in local currency. And they'll give you a little scratch off card that's got a, a code on it. And you enter that code and it, you know, it gives your phone credits. And that's either for voice minutes or for messages or for internet connectivity. And that can be very expensive for people. So what we run into a lot these days in low and middle income countries isn't the hardware, like I said, they have computers, they have phones in their pockets, but what they commonly run out of is um, credits for internet connectivity or messaging or, or voice minutes, whatever it may be. And I'll just give you one example of how outrageous the pricing actually can get. Um, we were working several years ago in Malawi, and we were working with them to build their first emergency communication center. And this was with a World Bank contract. And, um, you know, we the, the Beacon platform now has multiple components. There's the mobile app or SMS for responders. But then there's a web app for dispatchers where they've got maps and they've got a list of all the responders and they can see their location and they create incidents and, you know, like a CAD. It's, it's, it's a CAD light. But anyway, we were setting up this emergency communication center and they had to have internet in the emergency communication center, right? In order to use the web application, you've got to have internet. So they said, all right, well, what speeds do we need? And we said, look, this runs on very low speeds. So, you know, we don't need much. Let's say, you know, it would be great if you had a hundred megabits per second. And for just reference, I just ran a speed test on my internet at home yesterday here in San Diego. And, and I'm, I'm at, 450 megabits per second, 500 megabits per second. Um, and I'm paying, I don't know, 50, $60 a month for internet. And they looked at me when I said hundred megabits per second, they looked at me like, like I had three heads. And I said, well, you know, what's the problem? And they just kind of 
smiled and said, all right, well, we'll let you go negotiate those contracts with the internet providers. So I went around to the internet providers and I said, you know, I I need a quote for, uh, for, to set up internet in this call center. And they said, okay, what are you looking for? And I said, a hundred megabits per second would be great. And they said, are you, are you sure that's what you need? And I said, yeah. And so they gave me a quote and it turned out to be, I mean, it was like 20 to $40,000 a month. No kidding. They were charging about between 200 and 400 megabits per megabit per second. So, you know, it was just outrageously expensive. And so fortunately, our Beacon web application will run on as low as five megabits per second. But it was just a wake-up call like, wow, this is really outrageously expensive. And the question is, well, why is it so expensive? And, And the reality is because it's supply and demand, right? Um, the more people that demand internet, the cheaper it gets. And at that point in Malawi, which is a landlocked country and therefore doesn't have easy access to, you know, the cables, the, the intercontinental cable, transcontinental cables that are running internet all over the place, they had a lot of trouble getting it piped in. And so at the enterprise level, at the business level, there weren't a lot of people demanding high-speed internet. So prices were very high. But the more people that demand it, the more competition kicks in and it gets lower. And the more connections they have, the price gets lower. But this is a common problem um, across low and middle income countries is that for many people, internet is available. It's just not affordable. And so uh, hopefully that changes. But when we run into connectivity issues, it's usually not because they don't have the hardware or not because they don't have a signal. It's because they can't afford keeping that signal up and running. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, this is this is a common problem when we try to transplant emergency services of any kind, uh, whether it's vehicles or equipment or even professionals, um, to countries that are not in the in the first world order, as it were, um, that they don't have the necessities to maintain even what we consider the most basic equipment sometimes. So even, you know, even putting oxygen on an ambulance for some places is just not in the realm of possibility because they'll never be able to refill the tanks. So uh, this doesn't surprise me at all. And I'm sure, Jason, you've seen things like that happen everywhere. You're exactly right. Oxygen is a great example. Another one is gas, right? You can send this doesn't happen, but let's just say somebody sends a brand new ambulance somewhere. Well, that's all well and good, but do they have the funds to even put gas in that guzzler? You know, uh, gas is, we, uh, we enjoy very affordable gas in the United States compared to most of the rest of the world. Right. Um, and that's because we produce a lot of it ourselves. And we also have sweetheart deals with a lot of other countries, but, you know, you go to a lot of other places where they import all of their fuel. It's not cheap. Uh, another example is just spare parts, right? You can send a brand new ambulance down there, but it's going to break down. It's going to need maintenance and repair. And getting spare parts is is a lot harder. And when you do find them, they're more expensive. And it's many times it's simply because they don't have a giant ambulance manufacturer in their country that they can easily reorder supplies from. So. 
you're exactly right. It's uh, all of these small details that get taken for granted. Uh, the, the the obstacles become very apparent when when you uh, try to transplant or export solutions technology to other places. Yucky, what are you thinking? I guess I'm curious, like who you work with in in other countries to set this up. Like who who is your first, second, third points of contact when you're trying to make inroads in a foreign country? Yeah, that's a good question, and it really depends from country to country. Um, so one of our biggest international partners is the Red Cross. So probably not a surprise. They they in many countries. I mean, the Red Cross, Red Crescent movement is, you know, they're in almost every country. Um, but they do different things in different countries, right? If you think about the American Red Cross, well, you know, they'll do blood drives and they'll help get people sheltered during disasters. Or if somebody's home burns down, they'll get them temporary shelter, you know, that kind of stuff. If you go to Mexico, in Mexico, Red Cross runs the ambulance service. There are, of course, private ambulance services, but by and large, the Red Cross is running the ambulance services, right? So um, in different countries, the Red Cross, Red Crescent will do different things. Uh, but in countries where they are running ambulance systems, we oftentimes work with them. In other places, we'll work directly with the government. But honestly, in in most of the places that we're working internationally, um, and I, I should clarify that in low and middle income countries where we're working it's usually with non-governmental organizations or community groups that are managing their own services so how we make inroads with them is um with the big well-known organizations like the red cross red crescent we can you know you can go to them and 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 pretty much figure out who you need to talk to but for these other groups a lot of times they find us um, and they'll find us and reach out to us. One example is in Belize. So, uh, for those of listeners who don't know, Belize is just south of Mexico, uh, right next to Honduras and Guatemala on the Atlantic side of Central America. And, um, we are running a program. We are supporting a program there with the Belize National Fire Service and similar to what happened in Malawi. Um, we help them establish their emergency communication center, right? Before we were involved, it was very ad hoc and fragmented communication system. And they got funding from the U.S. Embassy and also from Southcom, you know, the, the, the U.S. military, uh, to build for the fire department an emergency communication center. And so one of their partners was looking for a dispatch software that was affordable compared to, you know, the legacy CADs that we use in the United States. That stuff is very expensive as you're probably aware. Um, they found us on the internet, just doing a Google search, came to our website, created an account, started playing with beacon and then said, we think this is going to work. Can we have deeper conversations? And one thing led to another, and now we're working with a partner called Impact International and Belize Heroes. They're two non-governmental organizations to launch what is now Belize's uh, first formal emergency communications system. 
And it started in the capital city and is now uh, working on scaling nationally. Um, and uh, yeah, so they found us and that's how it worked. So if if we know who to look for, we'll reach out to them. But on the international side, more often than not, they find us. Uh, and, you know, other ways, this podcast helps raise word of mouth, right? Just getting out and spreading the word. And and as I'm sure you're aware, you know, uh, it's a small world when it comes to emergency response. And so word of mouth does a lot to help us uh, find new partners and, and people to work with. Well, interesting you should mention Impact Northwest because you were the one who connected us with them at IDNC, and we've been working with them since, especially in Ukraine and some other areas. So, you know, it's been a pleasure to work with them. And you're everywhere. Um, you know, the interesting thing I find out, I find, Jason, is that you can log in. You, you made a mention of the fact you were, when the first Russian missile attacks hit eastern Ukraine, they were actually using Beacon. So you were able to log on to your computer and see exactly what was going on. Can you do that pretty much anywhere? Oh, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, that is uh, always both very gratifying and also a little depressing, right? Um, I remember hearing that there was an attack in Eastern Europe, a, a missile. I so I was in Ukraine the beginning of the year, um, working with some of our partners and and trying to scale up the solution with uh, other groups. And uh, I was there for a few months and left in the spring. And I remember waking up one morning in June and heard about a Russian missile attack in a city in Eastern Europe where we had uh, a group using Beacon. And I logged into Beacon and, and saw right there that they had evacuated, I think, eight or nine uh, people with severe injuries and burns, you know, victims of the missile attack. And um, again, it's very gratifying to to be able to support those groups. I mean, these are fantastic people doing just awesome, awesome work uh, and, you know under threat of life, truly under threat of life. And, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's grim, right? It, and, and it really does put a lot more uh, perspective on who we're serving. You know, this isn't just people doing routine, less than urgent transport, we'll say, right? Um, it's, it, it really helps keep us focused and, and sober, so to speak, about the groups that we're serving um there's there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it and so uh we're, we're just glad to be able to to lend a hand where we can well this is for becky because this is in her wheelhouse but you also have systems that look at uh, dispatching mental health crisis counselors and um victim violence situations domestic violence situations can you talk a bit about that yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, just for your listeners might not be aware. One of the interesting things about Trek Medics is that we're a nonprofit technology organization. Uh, historically, the majority of our funding has come through donations, philanthropic giving. Um, we get a lot of 
grants from technology corporations. Uh, our, our big supporters are Cisco, Twilio, PagerDuty, New Relic. These are all different technology companies that not only are they supporting us with financial assistance, but they're also supporting us with technology and technical advising. Um, but we also get money from uh, family foundations and, and you know private giving. We, we don't do a lot of individual fundraising, so to speak, um, but we are funded mostly through philanthropic giving. Now, that's uh, that's great, but it's a huge challenge, especially because software development is not cheap, right? I mean, it, it, it's it's pricey. Um, and so the problem with donations is that they're they're not consistent, right? I mean, if if the technology sector has a downturn, then these technology companies don't have as much money in their foundations to give. And that's, you know, a problem for us. So we've always been looking, how do we get recurring revenue to keep this thing going, irrespective of how the, the market is doing, so to speak. And interestingly, one of the big areas that we've found a lot of success in, and we've actually fit very well with, is what's been going on since COVID, since George Floyd, um, you know, which is now across the United States, uh, communities are launching these, well, 988 is now the national mental health crisis hotline. And so they're saying, if you're having a mental health crisis, instead of calling 911, call 988, and you can talk to a trained mental health professional, right? Well, now they're taking the next step is that they're also setting up what they, they come in different names, but generally they're called mobile crisis response teams. And this is, um, you know, mental health crisis counselors, trained professionals. And the interesting thing is one of our biggest programs is actually here in San Diego, uh, where I live and, and where uh, I started as a paramedic. And I, and I think everybody, all of your listeners can relate to this, right? So when I went through paramedic school, uh, we did, what, four months on cardiac emergencies and we did four months on traumatic injuries and, you know, we did all sorts of stuff on the medical side, but then towards the end of the course, you get to behavioral health emergencies. And, you know, I don't know what the actual number is, but it probably was four to eight hours of training on behavioral health, psychiatric emergencies. And then I got out on the ambulance and depending on the community community you're working in, up to 50% of your calls can be for mental health and substance abuse related emergencies. And it's like, why am I here? Why are the, why are the police here? Why are the fire department here? Why isn't the mental health team here? Right. And so now that's exactly what's happening. And so in San Diego, what happens is if you call 911 for a mental health emergency that has neither a criminal component or a medical complaint, they transfer that to a group that's running the mobile crisis response teams called telecare. And they started a couple of years. Uh, they came to us, they found beacon. They said, look, we're launching this program. We need a dispatch system. We're not going to go to the legacy CAD providers because that's way too expensive and it's overkill. Uh, and they said, you know, we think beacon could be a real great solution for us. And we said, let's do it. Let's go for it. And now when they started, I think they had three or four teams and now they're, 
at 15, they just got another big uh, grant to expand even farther. And their call volume every year is going up and up and up. And EMS, police, fire, they love it. They love this because it's like, look, we're not trained to handle mental health emergencies. And like, like I said, if there's no criminal component or medical complaint, then let's get the experts in here and they can resolve this. And so just this week, uh, we've been negotiating three new contracts with mobile crisis response teams in, in uh, Tennessee, Illinois, Maine, and Michigan. And they're all doing the same thing. They're, they're getting mental health trained professionals to respond either in lieu of or alongside law enforcement so that they can get them the care they need. And they, they also need a dispatch solution. So that's where they're using Beacon. And it's very gratifying for us. And it's also great for our financial sustainability because, you know, uh, a behavioral health department in the United States clearly has a bigger budget than, you know, a, a, a public or volunteer ambulance service in the Dominican Republic. So they're able to pay us and that keeps the lights on and it keeps us growing and keeps uh, everything stable and, and moving forward. So it's a real great opportunity. And you mentioned also domestic violence, uh, a similar situation. We're working with a group in Las Vegas called safe nest. And uh, what they do is they work alongside Las Vegas Metro police department to send domestic violence advocates to, you know, so the way it works is that if Metro PD gets on scene and makes an arrest for uh, domestic violence, then there's usually, you know, a survivor who's there who needs social services that PD doesn't provide, you know, they're law enforcement. That's what they do. They enforce the law. They don't provide social services. So what happens is PD will call up SafeNest and say, please send us one of your advocates who can come down here and work with the survivor to get them, uh, you know, the services they need, whether that's a hygiene kit or whether that's, uh, you know, counseling therapy or maybe to a, a shelter, a safe place, right? Or if they have children, uh, temporary housing and making sure that they continue to go to school and so that there's as minimal disruption as possible to their to their lives. And they've uh, they've been using Beacon for years now, and they're just doing an awesome job uh, working in tandem with Las Vegas Metro Police Department. So it's a real symbiotic relationship that gets people the care they need, uh, not just the care that's available. And that's it. You know, we used to have to send everybody to the ER and, and then they'd have to go, you know, to some other facility. And this is a much better idea. Right, Miss Becky? Absolutely. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, everything you were talking about, Jason, is is really what would be great to see um, implemented in all cities. There's so many cases of I think people just being generally misunderstood what their what their needs are, um, and if there was someone who was fully trained to adequately respond to a mental health crisis, um, you know, obviously everyone in the situation is, is better off. Absolutely, and it, it's evolving. It, it's it's really great to see it's picking up steam, especially on the mental health side, and um, you know, you you can look at Maine. 
what just happened there in Lewiston. And that was a terribly traumatic thing that happened, event that happened and it affected multiple communities. And it's not just now that the, the shooter is dead, it's, you know, and, and, and it's going to, everybody's going to just pick up and move on. There's residual effects to that. And police fire EMS aren't well equipped to deal with those issues. So it's really, I would say long overdue, but I'm very glad to see uh, the communities across the United States having this conversation. What is the proper role of our emergency responders and how can we supplement them? Indeed, yes. Um, there's a lot of healing that needs to be done there and in a lot of other places. Jason, you're just amazing. You and your how many people are working for your organization now? We have 10, and uh seven of them are technical, so software engineers or uh product uh product folks, but then we've got three support what we call support staff, but these guys do everything, right? So everything from customer support to onboarding new users to creating the promotional materials that we have, getting the word out. You know, one day they're on the phone helping a group troubleshoot something, and the next day they're manning a booth at a uh, a conference. So uh, we've got a very awesome team with lots of very committed people. And, you know, with a small organization, it's it's kind of you wear a lot of different hats so uh they've got a lot of great skills across the board and and we're just so grateful to the entire team for for being for being on board absolutely you know it's just it's just amazing what you guys are doing and and we can do our part by getting the word out on beacon and, and what you're doing right jamie a hundred percent. And I was going to ask that question next, Jason, which is, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about word of mouth and the importance of really getting information out there via this avenue and other resources. But um, what else can people do that are listening to this um, and want to learn more about Trek Medics and Beacon and all the things you're doing? Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And the 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 number one thing to do for us is, is visit our website and learn more about us. Our website's trekmedics.org. That's T-R-E-K medics.org. And really, um, like you said, Sam, word of mouth, this is the most important thing. And uh, for anyone listening to your podcast who is at all involved or connected to the local mental health or behavioral health department, I am certain that de that Department of Behavioral Health is having conversations about setting up their mobile crisis response teams. And, you know, if you're thinking about going back to our old textbook, you know, 27 chapters and chapter 27 is communications. Um, so that's honestly how a lot of people think about this when they're setting up these mobile crisis response teams is you know the intervention and the staffing and the design and one of the last things they think about is dispatch well we have that problem solved for them and can do it very easily so if any of your listeners are connected to their like i said their their local department of behavioral health or mental health group if they can share the word about what we're doing and and uh pass on our website that would be fantastic and of course 
we are a nonprofit organization. We, we don't go out soliciting uh, donations from individuals because that's that's a time-consuming and, and frankly, an expensive thing. But if there are people that want to donate to us and and uh, you know feel moved to do so, then they can come to our website and uh, you know contribute what they can, and we're very grateful for it. Well, I, <laughs> oh, that's okay. I was going to just ask Becky if she had any final thoughts or questions before we wrap up. I, yeah, I, <laughs> this has been such a, it's just such an enlightening episode. Every time we talk to you, Jason, um, I guess my, my head's spinning. Um, I currently am, am helping support the wireless emergency alerts um, that are issued by local authorities. And I don't know if there's any connection there, um, but I think it's just interesting to see some of the the parallels that, that happen, you know, at the, at the initial level when the you know, the first alert goes out and then how the ensuing response occurs um, and all the people like you who are taking it upon themselves to make it better and to make sure that the people who need the support get the support they need. So I, it's, it's just really cool to hear from you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to, to be back on and visit. And I, I can't thank you guys enough for even just giving us the opportunity to share. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a niche business. So when you've got, real heavyweights like yourselves here, it makes it great for us to get the word out. Well, we're happy to do it. I know we, I've been in contact with you in one form or another, Jason, I think for going on, what, 15 years now, maybe longer? I don't know. It's been a long time since since I first spoke to you when, back on the old MedicCast pro- program. So it's uh, it's been a lo- it's been a long time coming, and it's been fun to watch your organization grow and develop and expand and and really evolve into something that that is so flexible uh, a solution that it, it can be adapted to so many different resources. So uh, thank you for for your vision and the things that you saw the possibilities for. I think that's that's the thing I am most impressed with. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I think you're right. I think it's close it's close to 15 years because you I remember you were one of the first people I spoke with when when this was all starting and that was close to 15 years ago. 13 14. <laughs> it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Um how how long we've been doing this stuff and and watching it grow. So that's fantastic. Um I do want to give a quick shout out to Joe Holly and the team over at Paragon. He, Joe couldn't be on tonight, but you all know they they support the podcast and help us continue to bring episodes like this to you. So make sure you stop over at paragonmedicalgroup.com, uh find out more about the customizable training evolutions and solutions they can make available for you in the disaster and uh, austere environment emergency response realm. Uh, You certainly will not be sorry you reached out to them. I I can account for that. We've had numerous opportunities to, to see what they do in person and to also talk to people who've been through their programs and no one comes away without learning some really amazing stuff. So definitely take advantage of that. Um, so, uh, again, trekmedics.org is where you want to go and follow up on things. And, uh, Sam, I'll just turn it back over to you. But uh, it's always great to have Jason on and, and learn more about what those folks are doing. Indeed. In fact, um, 
They have some other interesting stuff on the website, including a bit of their own podcast, and that might be worth a listen. So thank you, Jason, for being with us. And we look forward to the next time we can talk to you. But it just shows you there's all kinds of good things going out there on out there in the world that people don't even know about. So we'll talk to you soon.